let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Ask Lord now that you would drive the enemy from this place. That you would send angels that excel in wisdom and strength to be given charge over this place. And now, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit in double and triple portion. Cover me, Lord, with your hand and let your word be spoken. Is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. We start tonight in the Old Testament. We're going to start with um, at the end of the life of Elisha. The Bible says in 2 Kings 13, starting at verse 14, Now, Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now, this is interesting because you get a chance to look at the death of Elisha and you get to compare it to the death of Elijah. The lesson is, it's not fair. Elijah is a prophet of God. He's filled with the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Does all kinds of miracles. He runs from Jezebel. Remember that? Jezebel says she's going to get Elijah. And he runs. He hides. He even leads his servant and keeps running. So if she comes, she gets the servant first. <laughs> and he hides and he prays that God would allow him to die. That God would just take him, you know, let him die. He says, I'm not better than my ancestors. Yet when Elijah, and when it comes time for Elijah to die, he never dies. In fact, God sends chariots of fire to pick Elijah up. And here's Elisha, who the spirit falls on him after Elijah goes up. And it's interesting that when it's time for Elisha to die, no chariots, no angels, he gets sick in a sickness that actually causes him to die. Was it fair that John the Baptist preached with power, baptized all the people, baptized Jesus? He died the most ignoble death by having his head chopped off at the request of a young girl and her mother. If you're going to be a Christian, one of the things you must understand is that it won't seem fair to us. But God is in control and knows what he's doing. And you've got to understand that Elijah and Elisha are both the prophets of God. Both are loved by God. Both are important to God. So I know sometimes you look at your life and you say, it's not fair. Things are going so good for that person over there. But if you spend your energy worrying about how good someone else is doing, you'll never reach your potential. So Elisha gets sick. This King Joash is actually the Joash, the king of Israel. There's also a Joash in the same chapter of Judah. And this Joash is a wicked Joash. Does not follow God's precepts. But even he knows when Elisha is sick to go and to cry over him and say, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, giving him a lot of props. And, he, and Elisha says to the king, and this is, this is where I want you to get some of the applicable lessons from. It starts around verse 15. And Elisha said unto him, take bow and arrows. And he took him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. 
And the last sentence says, and Elisha put his hand upon the king's hand. So Elisha says, look, get a bow and arrow. Put your hand on the bow. But then Elisha guides him by placing his hand over the hand of, jo of Joash, of the king. And he said, verse 17, open the window eastward. And he opened it. <laughs> then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And the arrow of deliverance from Syria. Thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek, till thou hast consumed them. So he says, take the arrow, and I want you to shoot it out the window. But he doesn't leave it up to a Joash to do alone. So he helps him, puts his hand over it, and he the, the arrow is shot out. The arrow does what it's supposed to do. It's successful in the symbology that Elisha has for Joash. So he says, listen, that represents the fact that you're going to defeat the Syrians. That's what you're going to do. So Joash is probably pretty happy. But then the story takes an interesting twist. The king, uh, Elijah, Elisha says, now take the arrows, just the arrows, and he took them and he said, under the king of Israel, smite upon the ground, and he smote the ground three times. So he says, grab the arrows. So the king grabs the bunch of arrows, and he hits bam, 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 and he stops. Now this is what happens from here. Elisha gets upset with him, he's wrought with him, and said, you should have smitten five or six times, then you would have smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it, whereas now you will only smite Syria three times. Now watch this. He was given the arrows as an opportunity to test his faith. Elisha said, listen, take the arrows and smite the ground. He takes it and it almost as if Joash is ready for this lecture, this class to be over. You ever been in class? You can't wait till it's over? He's waiting for it because he just does whatever he needs to do to get out of class. He takes the air and goes bam, 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 and he's done. And Elisha says, man, are you foolish? I just showed you with the shooting of the arrow that if you do the right form, if you do everything to the extent you're supposed to do it, that blessing will follow. When I tell you to do it yourself, you're mediocre. You only half do it. You don't do it all the way. You should have spent the ground at least five or six times. Had you done that, the Syrians would never have come to get you again. You would have beat them five or six times, and that would have been the end of it. Now, the irony of this is the, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom with the ten tribes, eventually it is the Assyrians who come and take them away captive, and the, and the nation of Israel, the ten tribes, are scattered all over the world. And you could argue that had he done what the prophet said, in fact, Israel might have existed at least a, a bit longer. So I give you that to tell you that when you go to school, when you go to church, when you're looking to be a Christian, it's easy when the previous generation places their hand over your hand and helps you shoot the arrow. That's easy. But at some point, you've got to grab the arrows for yourselves. And some of you are going to just try and hurry up and get through it. And you're just going to tap one, two, three and be done with it. What I came to tell you is when God puts the arrows in your hand, tap the floor enough so that he can gain complete victory in your life. Don't be mediocre. Don't half do things. In fact, you're going to face some serious arrows as you come out of school. You've got 
challenges you're going to have to face. And if you look at it here, one of them is a changing professional climate. What do I mean? Well, the world is being globalized. That means you're here in Ghana. When you go to look for a job, you're going to be, at least in part for many of you, competing with people in India, in China, in Europe. The way the world works is different. Because of technology, I can have some, if I need someone to do graphic art, I can go online. There are websites I can go to, and people in Russia will design my logo and do all of that work. If you're not excellent at what you do, I hope you hear what I'm saying. If you don't take the arrow and strike the ground the way you're supposed to, you can be beaten by folk you never even meet. The Syrians of this world. The people who aren't worried about how well you do or how well Ghana does, they're worried about doing well for themselves. You each have a challenge in that. In your spiritual life, you have the challenge that secularism is expanding its influence. As you go out into the world, as you come out of school as Christian uh, graduates of college, you're going into a world that re is rejecting Christianity. You may not feel it here locally, but if you haven't traveled to Europe or work in Europe or in North America, you're going to see that what you take for granted here is rejected in much of the world. In fact, you can be ridiculed for being educated and still holding to the truth that many of you have been raised to believe. The world itself is dying. The spirit of God is being withdrawn. That's number three. Number four, and this is a unique opportunity that you have to finish God's work so that we can all go home. And I think that's probably the most important thing. What you're being trained to do here is only part of the picture. Your first profession must be your profession of faith. You get that? That means that what you're studying in school should only be so that you can be better at what you do in terms of helping others. My accountants, well, I don't go to them anymore because I live too far, but I had some Christian accountants, and when you go into their office, that steps to Christ on the table. They had 3 a.m. playing in the, in, the, in the waiting room. Any customer that came into them was going to be exposed to their God. I challenge you, you don't have to be a medical missionary. You don't have to go into the ministry and be a pastor. If you're an engineer, if you're an accountant, if you're a lawyer, you can represent Jesus Christ in what you do. You can be ambassadors of a dying legacy. Elisha had a legacy and it was about to die. Joash had, had an opportunity to take that legacy and push it forward. You all are in a country where there are a lot of great church leaders. There are a lot of people in your churches older who are doing God's work. But guess what? The mantle is about to be passed to all of you. And the question is, will you be ambassadors for God in this country and even around the world? Will you be ready? And that's where the last one comes into place. It's the temptation to be mediocre. That is one of the great challenges. And there's an excellent business book. For any of you, anybody studying business? Anybody here studying business? Oh, it's business school. The, a book you must read is a book called Good, uh, Good to Great. In the book, one of his famous lines is this line, one of my favorite lines now. And that is that good is the enemy of great. What does that mean? It means that if you're happy just getting by, if you can get, I don't know if you can say ABCs here, but if you just get C's in school and you're happy with that, that will be the enemy. That will be the downfall of you doing great things. And here's the challenge. As a Christian, 
You are called to not be the tail. What are you called to be? The head. In fact, you represent Christ in how you do in school. You represent Christ in how you do at work. Every time we go into these arenas, we are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a serious thing. And each one of us is doing that. So the Spirit of Prophecy says this, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 263 says, the lesson is for all in positions of trust. When God opens the way for the accomplishment of a certain work and gives assurance of success, the chosen instrumentality, that's us, that's you, must do all in his power to bring about the promised result. In proportion to the enthusiasm and perseverance with which the work is carried forward will be the success given. So if you go to school and you're just like, eh, I don't really feel like doing well. I'm, I'm just going to do this. My parents sent me here. I don't really want to be here. I'd rather be out kicking the football around. You're going to have that kind of result in school. If you go to church and your attitude is, I'm just here because I'm supposed to be here. I was raised to be here. I don't really take this seriously. You're going to just have a very mediocre relationship with Christ. What I'm challenging you with is the challenge Elisha gave Joash. Take the arrows and strike the ground as many times as you need to to gain the victories that God has for you. I told you last night, many of you are called with special purpose to do great things for God all around the globe. You can't see it because many of you are more focused on where you come from than where God is about to take you. A lot of you are more caught up in what you don't have now rather than what God is about to give you. And I'm challenging you to stop limiting yourself and to really see that there's potential for God to do amazing things with every single one of you. God can work miracles. Page 263 continued. God can work miracles for his people only as they act their part with untiring energy. He calls for men of devotion to his work, men of moral courage, with ardent love for souls, and with a zeal that never flags. Such workers will find no task too arduous, no prospect too hopeless. They will labor in, labor on, undaunted until apparent defeat is turned into what? Glorious victory. You guys have a fellowship here on campus as a part of, of, of an organization that is nationwide. And it's tough being on a college campus, university campus. You look around at other denominations, other religions, and you say, these people would never believe the Bible the way we believe the Bible. They'll never come to the full truth of scripture. You may say, you know, this is an impossible task. What I'm telling you is that if you go at it right, God will work miracles for you. He will work miracles for you in ways you can't even understand. I know this because one, one of the groups that I used to work with in, in Los Angeles when I worked for the health department, I used to work with an organization that did a lot of work in rehabilitating gangbangers. Now, these are the Bloods and the Crips. You all know who the Bloods and the Crips are? No. Okay. So the Bloods and the Crips, Crips are historical street gangs in Los Angeles. They go back to the 60s or 70s. They go back a long way. They're pretty tough dudes, run drugs all kinds of stuff. I mean, historically they do. I don't know what they do now, really. And But these guys, when you deal with them, you're dealing with real killers. Real, you know, like they say in Jamaica, real gunmen, real bad men. And I saw some of them who society had completely given up on, had completely written off. 
And after the church began to work with them and this other organization began to work with them, I saw gangbangers, bloods and crips, begin to follow God, begin to get along with the bloods and the crips, fight each other, begin to get along. I watched them get jobs, have families. I saw lives completely turned around, lives that the rest of society in the U.S. would say could never be rehabilitated. When exposed to the power of God, they were more than rehabilitated. They became ambassadors for the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, you can't give up on anyone. That There are people that God has that you've got to meet, you've got to greet, and you've got to introduce them to Jesus for yourself. She says, not even prison walls for the martyr state beyond, or the, nor the martyr state beyond, will cause them to swerve from their purpose of laboring together with God for the upbuilding of his kingdom. And this is what you guys are here to do. One of the verses that, that clicks on this is this one. Now, I don't know if I'll give the full story of this this week, but I have a cousin who played for the National Football League. How many of you guys know who that is? That is the professionals. The biggest sport in the United States is called football, but it's not your football. It's our football. It's, you throw the ball and you use your hands. You know, Some people, the, the punter and the kicker kick the ball, but most everybody uses their hands. My cousin, when he came out of college, signed a $36 million contract with the Washington Redskins. He went number five overall in the draft. So of all the college football players, he went one, two, three, four, he went five, which means the higher you go, the more money you make. And hundreds of hundreds of, 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 of young people are of young men are drafted every year. What I want you to get when I read this text and I'll make it applicable is that it seemed like it was easy money. It seemed like, well, he just getting $36 million to play a game. But what the world didn't see is Five in the morning when everybody else was sleeping, he was out running. What the world didn't see is that at two in the afternoon when everybody else might have been at work or doing something else, he was lifting weights. What everybody else didn't see is that when the season was about to start, he changed his diet, the stuff he wouldn't eat, stuff he wouldn't drink. He changed the way he lived so that he could be a better football player. And he won a national championship in college. And I'll tell you more of his story later on, but he was a phenomenal football player. In fact, probably one of the greatest safeties to ever play the game of football. Paul says, athletes will do that, but Paul then says, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Paul says, when you watch all these great football players um, for La Liga, for the Premier League, for all the different football teams you guys watch, they work hard. And what are they working for? They're working so that they can win a championship, so that their team can get a trophy, and the state can get a trophy, the team gets a trophy, and everybody on the team gets a ring. And they're working so hard for it. Paul says, isn't it interesting that the world is willing to work that hard to get something that's going to be destroyed one day, something that is not permanent, and yet we aren't willing to work that hard. He says they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we are what? Incorruptible. I want to challenge you that when you study for school, when you do your daily devotion, that you understand that what you're working for will never be corrupted. What God has for you is eternal. And when you work, they work hard so that they can score a goal and try and win a championship. You're working for something so much bigger than that. He 
said, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beat of the air. So in other words, he's saying, I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not just swinging at nothing. Paul says, I'm fighting for real. He says, I keep under my body and I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a what? A castaway. The Greek word for castaway is adakemos. It means to be disqualified. Paul says, after I preach to everybody else, I don't want to be disqualified. Listen, I grew up seven-day Adventist, my mother's seven-day Adventist, her mother's seven-day Adventist, and her mother's seven-day Adventist. Four generations. But guess what? All of their faith can't save me. I've got to know Jesus for myself, right? I've got to know Jesus for myself or else I'll be lost. But I don't want to have gone to Sabbath school my whole life, been in the Pathfinders. I tried to sing in the choir, but I'd hit these notes and everybody would look back and say, who in the world did that? I realized I'm going to stick to doing something else. I don't want to have done all of those things and lose out on the kingdom of God. I don't want to go around and preach, sing in the choir. Whatever you do, I don't want to do that and then miss out on heaven. You know who's going to be very miserable at the second coming and, at, and, and even when New Jerusalem comes down? Can you imagine how miserable Judas is going to be? Judas was this close to Jesus. In fact, Judas used to work miracles with the other disciples. Can you imagine how miserable he's going to be when he realizes what he really missed out on? I don't want to be Judas. I don't want to miss out on what God has for me. I want to take this thing serious from now all the way through. So I want you to be ambassadors. Scripture says, Ephesians 6, 19, and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You are each to be ambassadors. He says, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God would beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When you are an ambassador, you get to trade in your sin for his righteousness. And that is a good deal. You get to trade it in. Otherwise, says it like this, he says, ambassadors for Christ have a solemn and important work which rests upon some altogether too lightly. Some of us don't take it seriously enough. While Christ is the minister in the sanctuary above, he is also, through his delegates, the minister of his church on earth. That is where each one of you come into play. And I know what it's like to have to be an ambassador. I have many stories like this, but I'll stick with the one about the Crips and the Bloods. So again, the Crips and the Bloods are street gangs. And they are very rough. They can't stand each other. If you, if you know anything about American hip-hop music, some rappers are crips, some rappers are bloods, and you can hear in how they talk which one is which. Right? So, like, Suge Knight is a blood, so he doesn't say Compton because he won't use a C. He says Bompton like, because he won't say his words a C. I know it's silly, but that's how it is. It's, it's, a, it's a whole hierarchy. It's it's very tribal, actually. They, they're very, they, they war. And they go, at, they go at each other all the time. 
And I had a group of them that we were working with through this organization. And one day when my day was over at work, it was about 5, 36 o'clock. I'm still sitting at the health department. I get a call from one of the guys in this organization that they need me to stop by their office because they've got a crisis situation at hand. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you don't come over here, someone is going to kill someone else. I said, man, that's, that sounds serious. You sure you don't want the police? He said, no, Dr. Walsh, we need you to come. Talk about being an ambassador. I got in my car, left my job, drove to this place, got there, and all the gangbangers were sitting around the table crying. I said, what happened? These are some tough, tough brothers. Tough. I said, what happened? Well, one of the guys that was, I'd become cool with that was rehabilitating his life. He had a, he had a baby and he had a girlfriend and they were, and they were you know, trying to put a life together. You know, he was getting, trying to get work or he was already working. He and the, his girlfriend had gone into Los Angeles from Pasadena to do something. I don't know what they were down there doing. They had the baby in the car even. And while he was there, one of their enemies shot, tried to shoot at him, shot the girlfriend once and hit him six times. He was shot six times. Now here's what's crazy. His girlfriend was shot once and died. He was shot six times and he survived. The baby, fortunately, was in the car, but the baby wasn't hit by any of the bullets. Right? Welcome to welcome to Los Angeles. And um and so these guys were there and they were crying around the table because in that world you can't allow someone to do something like that to one of your homeboys. You can't let one of them do that to one of your homies and you don't go and get exact revenge. That's like, it's a, it's a street rule. You, somebody's got to go get the guys who did this. And they were ready to go get them. And they were crying, they were angry. They were ready to go. That's why they called me. They said, now Dr. Walsh, you got to talk to them. Convince them not to go and get revenge. I said, what? And I sat down, let me tell you what I've found as a doctor, as a, as a facilitator, as a preacher. If you sometimes, if you just stop when life is overwhelming, when it doesn't seem like it makes sense, like God has put you in a situation bigger than you can handle, you got to sometimes just stop like David stopped before he went to Goliath. Pause and remember all the things God has done for you before. And that's what I did. I stopped, I paused, I took a deep breath, and I said, Lord, I don't know what to say. You need to speak through me. And when I opened my mouth, what came out is, I said to them, how many of you believe in God? They raised their hands. And a verse of scripture came and I said, well, God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay and I said to them, if anybody goes to exact revenge on whoever did this, you're saying you are God. And I said, I want to know which of you thinks you are God. Well, these men have been dealing with their sin, dealing with everything. They've been going to church. They've been trying to work things through, work out their lives, trying to put themselves back together. And I think that struck a chord when they realized that they would be stepping into the realm of divinity, by trying to exact revenge, they broke down. They started to sob. 
And let me tell you something. Talking about being an ambassador, not one of them ever tried to get revenge for what happened to their homeboy. In fact, later on, I was able to visit with their, their, home, their, their friend that was shot six times, who survived, who was pretty much almost completely intact. I got him access to mental health, so he got counseling. And within six to eight months, he was back working and taking care of his child. Now, here's what would have happened. Violence is like a contagious disease. If they had gone and exacted revenge, what would have happened? The group that they shot at would do what? They'd come back and shoot this, and it would just escalate. Violence begets violence. That's why the civil rights movement in the United States worked so well. It was nonviolent. I'm here to tell you, I never in a thousand years thought I would ever be able to sit in a room for the guys with the, with the, with the, with the street credibility that these guys have and stand up in the midst of something like that and speak and have them kind of like deflate put down their weapons of war, at least in their minds, and stay peaceful so that they all stayed out of prison and out of the cemetery. Now, I challenge each one of you. God has callings on your life. There are folk that he needs you to deal with now and later on. My challenge for you tonight is to be ambassadors. Don't be like Joash. Don't have God through this fellowship give you the arrows God is saying to you right now, bang the arrows on the ground. Don't bang the arrow once and give up and say, oh, that's enough, I'm going back to study. Don't bang the arrow twice and say, it's enough, I'm only here to get a husband. Two bangs is good enough to do that. Don't bang it three times saying, look, I'm just here to see, to, you know, so I can date around and meet a lot of girls. Don't do it. You bang it five, six, seven, eight times. You bang the arrow as much as God needs you to do so that greatness comes to you. Not greatness for your own um, um, self-exaltation, but, but greatness comes to you so that you can do great things for God. If you remember that, he will pass the tests and the exams for you. He will help you write the paper. I told you guys last night, I, this papers I wrote, I still don't know how I wrote them. I couldn't, I couldn't think it through. I would write a paragraph and stop. I'd write two paragraphs and stop. I'd write them, sometimes I'd write them end first. Right in the beginning, right in the third part of the play. Like a jigsaw puzzle. What I'm saying to you is, if he's got a purpose for you and you're willing to run towards him, he will make the path clear for you to knock out what needs to be knocked out. And I tell you this because you are the blood. You are the lifeline of the church. Not only here in Ghana, but you're going to be, some of you are going to impact the church globally. And I need you to, from right now, begin to understand you're not just preparing for a career. You're preparing to be soldiers in the army of the living God. Every song you guys sing, every time you guys have worship, every prayer that's prayed, every Bible study you have, everything you do is equipping you for work later on. That verse could not have come back in my mind if I'd never studied that verse. God has a plan for you. You're all ambassadors. There's great things that you're going to do. I'm going to close out by telling a story, finishing the story of my cousin Sean. I, I, um, it's, it's, I, I say that I give this story in a lot of my, in my sermons because it's, it's a powerful story. But in the final analysis, he's murdered. My cousin who got the $36 million contract, some of the boys who had visited his house, we probably should never have been there, 
I was told that they saw stuff at his house that was valuable. They came back to try and rob him. Of course, it's America. They carry a gun. They didn't expect him to be home. And when they came in the back window, he was there with his girlfriend and their baby. They came in the back window of the house. He came out with a machete, a cutlass, because he, he had gotten in trouble and he couldn't have guns himself anymore. The guy shot him in his leg and he bled out through his femoral artery. The biggest artery in the thigh. He was airlifted to the hospital where I went to medical school, to the trauma center there. They gave him $60,000 worth of albumin. They tried their best to keep him alive with blood and saline and everything else. And one of the interesting things is that my grandmother, who was a powerful saint of the living God, she camped out at his bedside in the hospital and would not go home, would not shower, didn't really even eat anything. Like ESPN, CNN, all the big news outlets, everybody was there at the hospital trying to figure out what was going to happen to Sean Taylor. My grandmother was there just singing in his ear, whispering scripture in his ear, just talking in his ear. She was being an ambassador. She was reminding him of the Sabbath school lesson she taught him when he was a child. And before it was all over, a doctor walked in with a nurse and the nurse put her hand in Sean's hand and the doctor said, Sean, squeeze his hand. And Sean squeezed his hand. The doctor said, Sean, blink your eye if you can understand me. And he blinked his eyes. The doctor looked at the nurse, the nurse looked at the doctor, and they walked out of the room. When that happened, my grandmother got up and walked out. Got her and started getting, putting her stuff together to go and told my brother, all right, I want to go. I want to take a shower and start and, and get cleaned up. When I heard him, I said it didn't make sense. It seemed like a miracle was just about to happen. Why did my grandmother get up and leave? But in 24, the news, CNN, ESPN all said that Sean Taylor's going to live. They're gonna, he's going to do all right. But within 24 hours, my cousin was dead. When I flew to Miami from California, Miami, Florida, from California, to go to the funeral, one of the people I looked for first was my grandmother. I said, Mama, why, when it seemed like he was about to be revived, why at that point did you walk away? Why did you go shower then? Why did you stay and pray? My grandmother said she was there reminding him of his Sabbath school lesson. She was telling him the Bible verses from when he was a child. She said, I was, I was singing hymns in his ears that I used to sing to him when he was a child. And I got tired and I said, Lord, I don't know if he can hear me. Show me that he can hear me. She said when she prayed that prayer, the doctor walked in the room. And the nurse walked in the room. And the doctor had him squeeze and blink. And my grandmother said when she realized he could hear her, her work was done. And she went home. She said, I gave him what he needed so that if on his deathbed he chose to follow Christ, he could. So that he could be saved. Let me tell you something to each one of you. This world is on its deathbed. Some of you, it's going to be your job to go back and find some of your friends that have given up on God and stopped coming to church. Some of the, some of the young people here on campus who no longer attend the fellowship meetings. Some of you to go back and whisper in their ear the lessons that they know. To go back and sing for them the, the hymns that they used to sing. To go back and remind them of who they belong to. And of the love of God. For some of you, God has a plan for you to recapture some that Satan thinks he has in his camp right now. You are an army, not just later on.
You're an army for God right now. And my prayer for the fellowship, my prayer for his leadership, for the chaplain, for all of you that are part of it, my prayer for you is that you will understand that this is a mission field. That you begin to win souls for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this, this short Bible study tonight, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the truth in the story of Elisha. The Lord is not enough to have the previous generation guide the arrow out the window. But Lord, we need to be able to take up the arrows on your command and bang them on the ground, symbolic, symbolizing the fact, Lord, that we are going to do whatever it takes for victory to be gained in our lives and in the lives of others. Lord, I ask a blessing on every student here, on the leadership of this fellowship, everyone under the sound of my voice. Right now, Lord, I ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. And that, Father God, you grant them the blessings of heaven in their studies, in their finances, in their relationships, Lord, in their home life, with their roommates. I'm asking, Lord, that you fill them up with your Holy Ghost. With our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.